3: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rapaport, And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and here we are bringing you some of the messages you've sent us over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Rob, if you're ready, I think we can jump right in. Uh, let's see. Uh, do you mind if I read this one from Kate about our navigation episodes? Make it so. So in our three-parter on Pacific Island Navigation uh one thing we asked for was if any listeners had experienced themselves with sailing, if they had thoughts about it. Uh, and so we did hear from someone. Kate wrote in to say, Hello, Robert, Joe, and Seth. I'm writing in today in regards to the navigation episodes. I have multiple reasons this episode hit home, but I will try to keep it brief. First, I have the book you referenced throughout the series, and it is next on my reading list. Uh, I think she's talking about We the Navigators by uh, David Lewis. Um, But then second, I am a licensed day skipper, small sailboats, and also lived on a tall ship for five months and crossed the Atlantic. During this crossing, the second mate on board offered the opportunity to learn to navigate by the stars, and no one else took advantage of it. Which was good in that it allowed me a solo course for our 21-day crossing, but also may say something of people's disinterest in something they don't directly require. The other thing I wanted to mention was that although there may have been specialized navigators, there would have been a massive amount of knowledge of the sea that would have been as commonplace as our understanding of a stop sign within today's society. The decline of this knowledge it could be compared to even 50 years ago, when the majority of people were able to keep a decent sense of direction in the bush, or at least enough knowledge to stay on a path that they uh, wouldn't get lost on, even if it wasn't a very noticeable path. Now, with the urbanization of humanity, there's considerably less common knowledge about bushcraft. It takes very little time for this information to be lost to a culture. Anyways, I really enjoy your shows, and my long drives to work are much more enjoyable when I have something to occupy my mind. Hope you're all well, Kate. Uh, thanks, Kate. And yeah, one thing you say in here that I think is absolutely true and that sort of comes through in uh, in, in Lewis's book is that Knowledge is a is a fragile thing, especially if you don't have a written culture. Like knowledge in an oral culture, it could take hundreds of years, maybe, to build up this this vast store of wisdom and lore that's communicated from generation to generation. Uh, but if you don't have like uh, written sources of it, it could easily be lost in just one generation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even of course in a in a written culture, even modern culture. There is still the, the the risk of slipping into another dark age uh, and, and of course writers have been um been discussing this uh, for pretty much as as, as long as as we 've been out of the dark ages um, so it 's always worth keeping in mind now I like what uh, what kate shared about um about uh, knowledge of um, of of the bush bushcraft mm-hmm. uh, this reminds me of uh, our discussions on getting lost in the woods. I can't recall if that those were st- different episodes, or if that was part of our look at the Leshy.
0: Oh, I think yeah, it was in the Leshy, and and some follow up stuff we did about the Leshy.
1: Yeah, but just the idea that that uh, yeah, if you, if you don't know anything about of uh, the the woods, if you're just you've just stuck to the path, you might well think that you can get off the path and easily return. That your sense of direction will will guide you, and will be something you can trust. And as we uh, discussed in that episode experiments have shown that that humans do not have that innate ability um if you if you don't know what you're doing leaving the 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 path can be fatal
0: yes and of course that varies a lot with like individual skill in the local terrain Mm -hmm. you know some places are easier to get lost than others but there are these stories uh that we did discuss in the leshy episode about yeah people go you know they think they're just going 10 or 20 feet off the path to go to the bathroom and then suddenly like they have no idea where they are and they can't find the path again yeah so I'd say that, together with the uh, the Pacific Navigation episodes, just uh, should, should make you to, to keep in mind, uh, uh, appreciate direction finding, and appreciate the tools and the resources you have, appreciate the skills people have in that area. It's it's very valuable and it's something we often take for granted. Absolutely.
1: All right. This next one comes to us from Ian. Ian writes in and says, "Dear Robin, Joe." I am still writing in about robot punishment, despite it having been a couple of weeks since I listened to it. In that episode, you mentioned in passing that humans often have less conscious control of our actions than we like to believe. This has come up in other episodes as well, specifically the one you did about how our choices affect our preferences instead of the other way around. I meditate daily, a practice that, among other things, can be looked at as a way to gain more conscious control of your actions, emotions, and even your thoughts. Of course, this is easier said than done. I wrote most of this email in my head this morning while attempting to clear my mind of all thoughts. (laughs) I've I've certainly been there. Uh, It got me thinking about the the rider and the horse analogy and the criticism that this view separates the mind and body in a way that isn't justified. We are inherently embodied beings. You have also discussed this idea, which I believe, uh, with I believe Rob saying we are more like a centaur, which I like. However, I wonder if it isn't more apt uh, than we give it credit for. The common way the analogy is explained is that people think of the mind as a rider in command of a horse, the body. But consider that in reality, a human rider isn't actually in command of the horse they're riding as much as they might like to think they are. Sound familiar? A human is not strong enough to actually make the horse do anything it doesn't want to do. All the human can do is create incentives and disincentives to try to encourage the horse to behave in the way the human desires. But ultimately, it is still the horse that is deciding what it will do. And th- this, uh, I, th- I think this is a-, a valid point. I mean, certainly... Uh, In meditation and meditative practices, uh, sometimes your body is a bit barn sour, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes it's uh, in a bit too much of a hurry uh, to get out of the wilds and back to, uh, you know, the, the, the sweet hay of the barn. Anyway, Ian continues, even though our consciousness isn't in charge of our actions like we think it is, and it's mostly post facto explanation, perhaps it evolved as an incentive system to train our other mental processes, For instance, it may be my emotions and other lower mental processes that determine whether I have that second piece of cake, but maybe those are influenced by my conscious thoughts, or at least the conscious thoughts I've had in the past. Perhaps my doctor has told me I need to cut back on sugar, but at the last birthday party I decided to have a second piece of cake anyway, and then upon reflection felt guilt about having done so, which changes the emotional calculus this time. As you've mentioned before, evolution is stingy, and expensive things like mental processes don't tend to stick around unless they serve a purpose. Perhaps this is that purpose. So maybe the horse and rider idea isn't so bad after all. We're just drawing the line in the wrong place. Maybe instead of the rider being the mind and the horse being the body, the rider is our consciousness and the horse is the rest of our mental, emotional, and bodily processes. The rider thinks they're in charge, but really they're just one influence on the horse among many. As an aside, this brings up another uh, way this analogy works. Well, the feeling of loss of control when very upset. I'm sure we all have experienced being so upset that we act entirely on our emotions while simultaneously experiencing the conscious part of ourselves watching our actions and thinking, stop, I shouldn't be doing this, but being unable to actually stop ourselves. I suppose this would be akin to the horse bucking and the rider not being able to do much uh, besides hold on. To go back to my original thoughts about meditation, perhaps the way that helps us gain control is by teaching us to be a horse whisperer. We're still without true control of the horse, but it helps us be a heck of a lot better at motivating it to do what we want.
0: Ian. Uh, Ian, I I think this is a fantastic analogy. I mean, and I think there are. Uh, There are truths to both methods here. I mean, uh, Rob, in your analogy of the centaur, you're emphasizing that you can't make a clear distinction between the brain and the body. The body influences the brain. Of course, the mm-hmm. brain influences the body, but it goes the other way, too. You know, they're they're inherently connected, and trying to think about them as like two separate things uh, le- leads to some confusion. But I think Ian also has a very good point here.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I love all of this. But also, I can't help but be reminded of the most recent episode of Weird House Cinema where we we discussed Spontaneous Combustion starring Brad <laughs> Doroff uh-huh. because that is a that is as we discussed it's a film about an individual who has trouble controlling his emotions and mm-hmm. when his emotions are out of control um fire erupts from his body from the world around him from bits of technology mm-hmm. etc and and he, he had he seems to have very little if 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 any control over these these flames and the flames are indiscriminate in who and what they burn. Uh, so I, I feel like that is kind of a proper analogy for for some of this as well. You know, this idea of loss of control. Stop! I shouldn't be doing this because once the fire is out, the fire does what fire does. It burns, and um, and and what can you do but watch? Very apt. Uh, all
0: John Landis's take note. Uh, but I would also <laughs> say that um, I. I I can see some merit to Ian's other point. So Ian is uh I think sort of making a case against epiphenomenalism, you know. So epiphenomenalism is one take on the the mind-body problem that would tend to say that actually consciousness does nothing. I mean, consciousness exists and it is it is the part of your brain that can reflect upon itself, but your brain could do everything it does without being conscious. Consciousness is just some sort of strange byproduct, maybe that we don't understand, but it doesn't actually have power over anything. And epiphenomenalism would be something that's difficult to demonstrate. But uh, but here, I think Ian is sort of equating consciousness with having some kind of uh, reinforcing power in, on the metacognition of the brain in order to influence future the future behavior of the brain, saying that the consciousness actually does play this role in metacognition that, uh, that helps us better rein in our own mental processes. And, and I guess that's possible, but it's hard to know. I can't recall who's written like this before, but I know I have encountered this idea that in some ways basically sees uh, consciousness as necessary to or coextensive with metacognition.
1: So it remains an open question. Is, uh, is the, the human mental condition, is it, a, is it a centaur? Is it a rider on a horse? Is it a character actor on fire? Is it a satyr? I don't know. You can go in various directions. All right. Oh, and so uh, also
0: apologies to Ian. I had to make some abridgments to the previous email for length. Uh, Apologies to the next uh, writer because uh, Sean, I also had to make some abridgments to this uh, email as well. Uh,
1: I'm I'm sure you all understand. But Sean (laughs) writes to us about – sorry (laughs) – no, I was just thinking we've, we, we told everybody not to, not to say they're sorry for writing a long email, but now we're apologizing for uh, carving up long emails.
0: Well, okay. No. So I don't usually mention if I just cut out like a line here or there at the beginning or end, that's just sort of uh, introductory material or, or whatever. But uh, if I have to, if I have to chop out like huge paragraphs or something, I, mm-hmm. I might note it uh, just, just so the uh, writer doesn't believe I missed it by accident. Okay. But maybe me saying this now means I won't have to say it in the future. Yeah, sometimes, folks, I'm just going to have to edit emails down a bit. Anyway, uh, uh, thank you very much, Ian. And then Sean gets in touch with us about finger counting and free Sean says, hi, Joe, Robert, and Seth. Someone might have written in to tell you this already, but I have a method of counting to 33 on one hand. I first learned this method from my late father-in-law, who was teaching me how to make thicker, um, well, okay. So the word here is spelled d h i k r or d h i k i r. I've heard it pronounced thicker before, um, but uh, Sean gives a pronunciation guide in which he says to pronounce it thikir, which might be like a, a regional language variation. I'm not sure, but but since uh, since Sean gives that, I'm going to say thikir instead of thicker for the rest of the email. So uh, in, in thikir here, uh, which is an Islamic practice of praying. Sean says, the first time he showed me how to count this way on one hand, I nodded along, but really it took a long time before I understood. I'll try to describe the method. Imagine each finger split into four sections, the fingertip, then each crease where there is a joint. By placing your thumb before the first joint crease of a finger, you can count to one. Then after that same crease makes two. Continue up the finger, counting up one, both before and after each crease. Finally, counting one when you reach the fingertip. This makes a total of a count of seven for each finger. You can do the same with the index finger on the thumb, counting to a total of five, as there are only two joint creases in the thumb. Four times seven plus five makes a total of 33 for one hand. This is useful for the teqir, as each mantra should be said 33 times. However, I can't imagine many other situations in which you need to count to a base 33. I'm sure if one has been learning to count this way since childhood, it would be easier to remember, but after learning this method as a second language, I doubt I'll ever be able to master it for day-to-day needs. Technically, with mastery of this counting method, you could count these single digits on one hand up to 33, then count orders of magnitude on the other hand again up to 33. So theoretically, one could count up to 1089 or 33 times 33 with just two hands. That's impressive. Absolutely. I'd, I'd never heard about this before. Uh, But then Sean goes on. Uh, Sean says, Changing topic. I wanted to offer my experience of Friesan. I noticed while listening to an episode of Listener Mail that you were talking about the backing vocals of Gimme Shelter, and I experienced a wave of goosebumps. I first heard these particular vocals in the original Friesan episode, and they triggered Friesan in me, but it was unexpected that a mere description of the vocals would trigger it, too. I often experience musical frisson as well as a similar sensation in emotional movies or podcasts, and sometimes while just thinking about an emotional story or movie scene. All the best, Sean.
1: Now, that does make me wonder when uh, Sean is is thinking about these particular musical uh, bits, are they playing out in their head, you know? Uh, Because Mm. I find that, like, that's the case for me. Like, if, if someone was to mention, say, um... Like the the very opening of Radiohead's "Everything in Its Right Place," or mm. um, you know, or to or to say, "Hey, how about that really uh, that really uh, um, dramatic part of Carmina Burana?" Um, mm-hmm. Which I know which which dramatic part, but um, <laughs> but l- like if if there's enough of a of a hook there, then I will I do replay it in my mind, and then I can certainly feel a certain amount of uh, of, of chills. You know, I can experience goosebumps if it is the right song. Yeah. Uh parts of Les Mis for me, I think will do that. Yeah. I'm not sorry. No, no, Les, Les Mis is a good uh musical. I, I got to see it once. It had the big uh the big wheel stage. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like with a the big barricades treadmill. coming. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, Wait, you know that actually powers the uh, <laughs> uh the whole the, the whole theater. It's just the, the pure acting uh, energy of the of the of the cast and crew. They've got little Gavroche on a hamster wheel. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne. Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Jean! Eugene Fodor. Gene Vulgo.
1: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
0: So you hide books, Jean. and business. I understand now. Is a wise man. Uh, is a wise woman.
1: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas.
3: Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going
2: on and its high time. You tell me the truth.
1: Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh!
2: Jean, run!
1: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination.
0: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or
1: wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here's one from Taylor, uh, and this, has to, this comes as a response to our episode on queuing. Robert and Joe, great episode on waiting. It finally prompted me to write after years, listing uh, consistently since the How Stuff Works days. In the waiting episodes, I'd be curious to hear more of our tendency to wait or follow orderly lines when there is no line or correct order. For example, in New York City, when hailing a cab, there's always the situation where a cab can pull over, but it takes time for it to stop, so he overshoots you by a few feet. Innately, people understand that the cab pulled over for me from the line of, I was earlier in the street, so he saw me, even if they may be closer to where he finally stopped. So we make a line of where you are in the street, even though there isn't an actual line. (laughs) I think I understand that. You should prove this nuance how we innately create unwritten laws by labeling the show The Waiting Part 4 only to a week later have a The Waiting Part 3 for 30 seconds when you point out many people probably waited patiently for a Part 3 before listening to Part 4 because that's what people do. <laughs> Great show, Taylor. I love these, this guidance on how to screw with listeners' heads. Yeah, I, I we, we do. I feel like we're doing enough of that. Um uh-huh. Um, uh without trying to so <laughs> i don't know if we need to to orchestrate anything uh, uh, too sinister
0: here but taylor i do think that's interesting about the understanding of the uh the unspoken queuing rules for for cabs on the new york city streets uh, especially since there is this there's this uh cultural meme or, or reputation for like people in new york being like rude and pushy and selfish and just trying to get ahead of everything um, I mean, for one thing, we saw uh, plenty of uh, opposition to that in those Stanley Milgram experiments, which were carried out in New York City, uh, or at least around the New York City area. But, uh, but also, I think that's, you know, to whatever extent that's true, it clearly doesn't extend to people not obeying lines. Like, you know, lines dominate even when everybody's really got to get a cab.
1: Yeah, I mean, if if things get too out of hand, though, what we're going to have to do is just make everybody roll for initiative. That's just the only Uh. way to handle it. Let's get those dexterity uh, uh, rolls out here. Let's, uh, Let's see what we get on a D20, and we will rank everybody accordingly, and you will know exactly what order you go in.
0: All right. This next listener uh, wanted to remain anonymous, but they write in concerning queuing at a place where where I have experienced some of the most nerve wracking uh, lines and wait times ever, which is at border crossing checkpoints. You you ever have this experience, Rob?
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, going through customs at the airport. Yeah, that kind of
0: thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this anonymous listener says, I currently live in Chula Vista, California, and I crossed almost religiously to Tijuana for family and business. One of the biggest fight starters that always happens at the border are those who cut in line via car or foot. Fights and arrests happen weekly, especially people who cross without appropriate documentation such as spring breakers or weekend drunks. There are people who cross daily because of work or school, and there's always people who don't respect the line. And when you least expect it, a fight breaks out and the cops show up, and then the border has to close for a while until everything is calmed down. People are always in a rush. There aren't enough CBP officers, and the lines have taken from two minutes to four hours on foot and ten minutes to ten hours via car. Mm. Uh, this is through my own experience crossing through the, the, uh, the port at San Ysidro. Thanks for taking the time to read my email. Uh, and man, this one, uh, well, thank you for getting in touch, but also this one makes me think about some of the downsides of the single file queuing for access to things uh, where there are like wildly different stakes for different quewers So you have mm-hmm. somebody like the, the person writing in here who probably has to cross the border frequently, maybe every day for work and family and stuff like that. And then at the same time, like the same queues are being shared by like t- drunk
1: tourists who were just partying. I, I can't believe I didn't bring this up, but this reminds me of a form of queuing that I have really appreciated in the, I guess, few establishments that I found it um, integrated. And that is the the idea of having two lines the I know what I want line and the I need some help line oh um, that's like smart yeah that can that can really stream, move things along you know if if you know exactly what you're getting let's going back to our bagel sandwich analogy if you just know you're getting the number three no changes whatever then then, yeah, let's have a line for those people. But if you need to inquire about uh, about changes to the menu, uh, about uh, about the ingredients, if you need some guidance on which bagel sandwich to order, then yes, let's have a separate line for that. And we can have a, a specialized um, uh, teller that deals with, with those clientele.
0: Yeah. I mean, it may be the case that some border, cr- border checkpoints have something like this. I don't know. But I mean, if they don't, you should find a way to Organize things into you know one line for people who have business and family obligations and then the other all the spring breakers and stuff Could they get their own line?
1: Yeah, but I guess one of the challenges is just how do any time you get into a system like that? How do you do it in a in a way that's that's fair for everybody, right? Yeah All right, here's another one This one comes to us from Chris dear Robert and mr. Joe (laughs) Listen, okay I, this one may, this one might might be, maybe this is uh, uh, Mr. Joe. The only person I, I've, I think I've introduced you to is Mr. Joe, is my son. Uh, but it's okay, <laughs> I guess, if other people call you Mr. Joe. Uh, listener from the Science Lab days, uh, thanks for years of podcast. Uh, Stuff from the Science Lab was, of course, the original name of this podcast way back in the day uh, when I co-hosted it with uh, Allison Loudermilk. Uh, anyway, Chris continues. Queuing. I had an experience with queuing yesterday that I that I thought I'd write in with. I was at the county clerk's office to get a title for my car. The queuing system was a paper system. You would get a number and have a waiting area. The wait was long, an hour and a half, and during that time I saw a couple of things you may be interested in. First off, several people left after waiting for a while. This meant their number was getting unused what is the morality of taking their number? I didn't get the chance as they threw it out while leaving, but would it be cutting in line? I don't think anyone would have noticed. They were too busy looking at their phones. What Would that change the morality of it? Second, In a system where it is easy to understand once you understand what the system is, what is your responsibility as a line waiter to communicate with others who are trying to understand the system? In a normal queue, people point out the line and the end of the line for the person, I think to make sure the system is orderly for their own convenience. In this case, someone stood waiting where you would get called up, as if there were a regular queue. Do you tell them or let them learn to pay attention? Perhaps allowing a person or two to grab a number in front of them as a lesson. It felt like it was an an easy system. Uh, I had seen many people figure it out before her. Or am I just being rude because I don't like to talk to people? (laughs) Anyhow, great podcast. Thanks, Chris. Well, on the first question, I think, yes,
0: taking the number of someone who has there's actually a a technical term for this in the queuing literature. It's known as balking Uh, people who who look at a line or look at a queuing system and then just say, like, "Okay, uh, the service or product I want is not worth whatever this waiting or queuing situation is. And they just leave. Uh, That's called balking. So somebody balks. They've already got a number. They, you know, they do a late balk and then they leave. If you take your their number, yes, you are violating the first in first out principle there. So I would say that is cutting. I would say the the only real variation on that is if somehow uh, an abandoned number took as much time as a as like an actual customer. Uh, but usually an abandoned number just means like they call it out, nobody comes, and they go to the next one, right?
1: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how. I, I never really thought about this before because yeah, generally I don't think I've ever seen anyone say, "Hey, I'm leaving. I'm I'm out of here. Who wants my number?" it's generally just discarded or maybe they might sort of casually leave it out. I don't know, but, um, yeah, I guess I could see a case going either way, kind of a gray area. Uh, now, now this idea of balking, it's interesting because I, I heard, a I I think an NPR story recently about balking in terms of reservations for restaurants, uh, which especially during, uh, you know, this time where restaurants are, are opening up often from very, um, Slim down uh, models of operation. Mm-hmm. And you have people do something that can make a lot of sense on the consumer end. You, you're not sure if you're going to eat at this restaurant or not, but you're going to go ahead and get a reservation. Maybe mm-hmm. you'll go ahead and get two reservations for restaurants that are close to each other and see how you feel when you get closer to the time. And of course, that may give you a lot of options, but it takes options away from the restaurant that's trying to... Yeah. Uh, to, to, you know, to, to run a business. And so they were talking about how some places are turning this model of, to, of, of requiring you, in order to make a reservation, you have to pay a small fee, mm-hmm. um, which, which I, have, I have done. I, I was kind of surprised when that came up. I was like, oh, wow, this, this place thinks they're fancy, but uh, they, they weren't that fancy. And after I heard this radio story, it made a lot more sense. It's like, yeah, yeah, you want, you want people to have um, an investment in actually following up on that reservation
0: as somebody who has worked in restaurants people don't do this this is so annoying to the, to the the staff that works at the restaurant it can mean lost business of course but it also is just like a a huge pain in the neck for like the host or whoever's managing the seating and a lot of restaurants they have like uh cycles of they go through cycles of giving the tables to the different servers so like you might have a a server who's getting skipped in one cycle of seating because they know they've got a big party coming next with a reservation but then if that party doesn't show up they're just out that table and out the tip Mm -hmm. uh it just it screws things up for everybody it's extremely rude don't do that yeah Sorry, I, d- I didn't mean to get a uh, two-finger waggy there, but uh, no, but no, I, 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 I know I it, it from the other end.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and from the consumer end, like it—you it, know—it sucks to try and get a reservation somewhere, and you can't, or you show up at a place and you can't get a table. Uh, so, help reduce the number of like uh, of ghosts that have reservations. You know, people right. that are never going to show up.
0: Okay, one last message here. This is in response, I think, to a previous listener mail episode and generally to Weird House Cinema. This is from Megan. Megan says, Hello, I've been an avid listener for many years now, and I love the addition of Weird House Cinema. In your recent Listener Mail episode, you were discussing why nuclear radiation is depicted as a a green glow rather than a more realistic blue glow. Something you didn't discuss was a fact I learned while getting my film studies degree, a fact that I can't unsee ever since I learned it. In film, the use of green often foreshadows death. For example, if a character is bathed in green light during a tense scene, the outcome is usually not good for that character. Maybe the use of green to depict radiation glow is also related to this cinematic shorthand, since radioactive substances can lead to illness or death. Anyways, keep your eyes peeled for this in movies. It is surprising how often a character's demise can be forecast by the color green being subtly added to the character in some way. Thanks for all you do. Stuff to blow your mind is the metric by which I measure all other podcasts. Megan. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, th- thank you, Megan. Yeah, this is interesting. I think maybe I'd heard this before, but it's definitely never been front of mind for me.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I guess it's something I need to look out for next time I, I sit down and watch a film. But it does bring to mind, I was I was looking at different uh, Brad Dorf uh, clips for our, our recent Weird House Cinema episode, mm-hmm. and I ran across... Uh, one of those just unnecessarily grotesque scenes from David Lynch's Dune uh mm-hmm. that in, that that features Clan Harkonnen sitting around grossing it up and and it has these just just disturbingly green walls in the background. You know the oh, yes. scene I'm talking about. Oh yeah, uh, the
0: very first time we meet the Harkonnens. So You got Baron Harconan there. Like I think he ends up like floating around the room. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, P, uh, uh, what's it? Brad Dourif has Peter Devries
1: there, and mm-hmm. what is Sting in the room? I, I think. think yeah, I think um, uh, Fade Rotha is there. Also yeah. the Beast is there, and the various Beast Rabban, uh, underlings. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's the whole crew just hanging out in the the, All the evil redheads. Room. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, but they're hanging
1: out, and the room is just green. It is just leprechaun green. Yeah, shockingly green. Like, green enough that by modern standards, you look at it, and you're like, is this a finished scene? Is this—are is they were mm-hmm. they going to add something digitally in the background? And you're like, no, 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 I think that, no, this is before all that. This is just a, a really green color choice for their wall.
0: Uh, do I recall that also in, in Lynch's Dune, when you see the Harkonnen planet, it's sort of green on the outside, too, but not like a— not like a natural green, like trees of foliage and all that, but it's just like green buildings.
1: Hmm. That sounds familiar, but I, I I don't recall. It's been a while since I've seen it in full.
0: Well, it's quite appropriate. Harkonnen means death. Yeah. And I think by the end of the movie are all those characters dead? I believe they are. Um I don't know what happens yes. to the
1: beast. Uh but I think the beast dies, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Spoiler for Dune, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, these 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 bad guys are all are all doomed, but um, but they cause a lot of havoc before that comes comes around. So, uh, yeah, yeah, good good old Clan Harkonnen. All right, we're gonna go ahead and close the mailbag here, but we will be back. Uh, so keep writing in. We didn't get to everything in this episode, as usual, but we'll come back to it. So write in with your thoughts about navigation, about uh, emotional outbursts and centaurs on fire. Uh, more more listener mail about uh, Harkonnens and waiting in line. Uh, we'd love to hear all of it. Uh, let's see. Yes, if you want to hear listener mail, it occurs on Mondays. Artifact occurs on Wednesdays. Weird House Cinema occurs on Fridays and Tuesdays and Thursdays. Those are our core episodes of Stuff to Boil Your Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com.
2: A new season of Bridgerton is here.